Welcome to Copcast. I'm Rumbi Chakamba, Associate Editor at DevEx, and I've headed to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt for this year's United Nations Climate Conference. In this podcast series, we bring you inside the walls of the Blue Zone for a series of in-depth conversations with climate and development leaders, asking them the big questions. What's really needed to make meaningful progress towards climate goals and what role should the development community play to support that? We're talking about, you know, loss of livelihoods for people and we're talking about a large number of people. Loss and damage is on the official COP agenda for the first time and there have been plenty of discussions about it both inside and outside the negotiating rooms. No more blah blah blah. Loss and damage right now. No more blah blah blah. I'm Harjeet Singh and I work with Climate Action Network uh, as head of global political strategy. I'm based in New Delhi. We now need to make sure that this agenda that we got under finance results into a financing facility to address loss and damage, which means people who are suffering from climate impacts. Uh, get some help from this system. Pakistan is still reeling from unprecedented floods that cost between 30 to 40 billion dollars in economic damage, killing 1,700 people and displacing 8 million. At COP27, the Pakistan delegation's message was boldly written across their pavilion. What goes on in Pakistan won't stay in Pakistan. The country is calling for loss and damage financing to be made available immediately. Our senior reporter, William Worley, sat down with Aisha Khan, Executive Director for Pakistan's Civil Society Coalition for Climate Change, to discuss the humanitarian and development needs in the country and long-term solutions to the climate crisis. Hi Aisha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Will, for having me. Uh, you've got extensive experience of, of in first-hand knowledge. You've, very, you've seen very close up uh, what's happened to the country. But you've also got some really interesting uh, geographical knowledge about what's happened in Pakistan. So just to give everyone a bit of context that they may not have heard on the news, could you explain why uh, the floods happened in Pakistan in the way that they did and why they became so bad? This is not the first disaster that Pakistan has seen, nor is it the first event of flooding that we have seen. We've seen disasters like the earthquake and we had the super floods in 2010, then there were floods that happened in 2011-12. So this was really building up. And because of its geographical location in mid-latitude, the land surface is warming up as a result of climate change. So the increase in the difference between the land and the ocean temperature is what causes more intense monsoons. So the Med Department had warned the country that they, this year the monsoons will be more intense, but nobody could be prepared to have monsoons that were 300% or 400% more. So this is the kind of uncertainty that is coming into climate change now, and hydrometeorological disasters will remain a recurring form of disaster for Pakistan because of its location. It has the mountains on one side and then it is uh, a monsoon uh, country. So we, we are going to face many, many difficulties in the future as well. You were telling me uh, earlier before we came on air uh, about the, the glaciers in, in Pakistan and how they're affecting what's happening with the, the water situation. Could you just explain a little bit how the, the unique mountainous 
terrain of Pakistan uh, can uh, affect these disasters and other things as well like water scarcity? Uh, Pakistan is part of South Asia and in South Asia the Himalaya Karakoram and Hindu Kush mountain ranges actually dominate the mountain uh, environment of the area. It is also a very vast chiropheric space that it occupies which means there's a lot of snow and ice. In fact it's called the third pole because it has the largest and the densest collections of glaciers outside the polar region. So what happens here as a result of climate change is hydrological imbalances. Too much heat accelerates melting which results in flooding. It also results in glacial lake outburst incidents. We've had a few earlier in the year uh, as well. So mountain communities rely on these ecological assets and these goods and services. When there are disruption in these flow patterns, water not at the right time, not in the right quantity, too much water, it just disrupts their livelihoods and their lives and they end up losing uh, the very few assets that they have because mountain communities live in a very harsh terrain. Their land holdings are very small. So any disruption in the natural system has a much more amplified impact on their life. Thank you. So the, the news agenda has moved on, of course, from the summer when the floods happened, covering submerging up to a third of the country in, as, as in, in, in some reports. Um, but I'm wondering if you could just bring us back to the summer and the, the period kind of just after that. Tell us about what happened on the, the ground, which is so fueling these claims, uh, demands even, for, for loss and damage by the Pakistani government. And can you tell us a bit about the development and humanitarian challenges that have been created as well? Whenever there's a humanitarian disaster and a crisis like this, we uh, are very good with the first response because the military actually plays a major role as first responders. So over a period of time, they have developed the capacity and the discipline and they have the organizational structure to be the first responders. So we don't really have many losses in lives. But what happens as a result of these mega disasters is loss of infrastructure. And that is something that you cannot prepare for. It means preparing for adaptation. It means building resilient infrastructure. This time also you've seen that the road infrastructure is gone. The bridges are gone. So the supply of uh, aid also becomes a problem for civil society organizations. So it has to be done by airlifts. So the people have now moved to higher ground areas, but their problems are not over because the water is still standing. It's draining gradually, but the winter cropping season is past now. So they're not going to have winter cropping. So this is going to really have a cascading effect because it's not just this disaster that's affected their lives, it is going to have secondary implications. It's going to have literally intergenerational impacts of losses on their lives. Because when everything is destroyed for them, their meager savings are gone, they have health issues, they're spending more money on medical expenses, uh, they have lost um, lives or maybe the head of the family, then their entire future gets changed as a result of this. So initially the recovery and response um, has been over. 
uh, and, and now we are into the next phase which is the rehabilitation and that is where Pakistan says that it requires assistance because uh, World Bank estimate has come out um, uh, I think putting a price tag of nearly 40 uh, billion for recovery. So Pakistan doesn't have that kind of money. Pakistan was not anticipating to face these kinds of disasters. Uh, its economy was already struggling and now uh, according to another study it's going to have literally an impact of 10% on the GDP growth. So all these things are going to create destabilization within the country and given Pakistan's situation in South Asia, it's going to have a destabilization perhaps on uh, the region as well if the conflict expands. So I know Aisha, you also do a little bit of work on that regional integration piece. Would you be able to just explain a little bit about what you're doing for our listeners? I advocate regional resilience because I am convinced that we need to promote regional diplomacy. We need to decouple politics from climate conversations. We need to build hydro solidarity. We have in Pakistan a single river and a single basin that supports the and serves as the lifeline for the economy, the agriculture on which uh, hundreds of people depend on their livelihoods and that is like the mainstay of the economy also for many, many people. So it is very important that we start focusing on cooperation on water. And if that is immediately not possible, I think there are other windows of cooperation. There is civil society to civil society collaboration that is possible. It is also possible to have science and society dialogues because people actually do not fully understand the implications of climate change. They're poor people, they live from day to day. They cannot think of long-term deterministic damages that will happen or how their lives will get altered. And as a result, the more they get sucked into the poverty cycle, the more they start degrading the environment. So they're not doing it knowingly, but that is what their sustenance depends on. So I think for the policy makers and for civil society to be a little more aware and educated on the science aspect of the ecology that they're living in, because we're living in a very fragile area. And it will have cascading impacts, it will have social impacts, it will have economic impacts, and it will have impacts on the biodiversity loss. So we need to think of working together, we need to find ways of working together. And if once we agree in principle that collaboration is the best way forward for transformative resilience, then the other things will fall into place. People will find ways of where to engage, how to engage, and take it forward in baby steps, but incremental manner. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today.
I want to come back to the collaboration piece because the point about uh, powers working together, leaving the politics out of it and collaborating on a big topic, uh, issue like, like climate change. Um, we're talking about Pakistan and I think India. The big uh, challenge that a lot, has a lot of attention at the moment is the, India, is the USA's collaboration with, with China. But it sounds like what you're saying is we need to, like, that's not the only issue where we need to find alternative ways of cooperating while also dealing with bilateral, bilateral issues. I think for Pakistan, um, looking at the, the multiple problems, the poly crisis that it faces, it is not a question of uh, and or. It's just a question of and and. So you need to keep adding on to the basket of your national security and your human security. So you need to identify the areas where collaboration will be beneficial for the country, for the people. And I think the new national security policy that came out recently also emphasizes a shift from geopolitics to geoeconomics. We need to build the economic resilience of people uh, at the household level and of the country at the national level. Maybe we could go back to those challenges that um, we talked about that are being stored up down the line that have been caused by the floods. If we could just unpick them a bit for our listeners. We've mentioned uh, the difficulty with uh, the, the crop situation. You've already talked about livelihoods. Could you maybe just break down for our listeners what you think could be having been caused by the flooding what might be uh, raising its head as more of an issue in six, 12 months' time? Uh, from the Pakistan perspective, already, according to a report, we have 49 million people who are living in an area where it is anticipated that the quality of life will decline by 4 to 5% by 2030. So that's a big risk factor. Overall, in South Asia, there are about 800 million people who are living in climate vulnerable hotspots. So what we're looking at, mass displacements of people. We're looking at out-migrations. And that in itself will be a very big problem because our urban centers right now don't have the capacity to provide or meet with the needs of the present population. So if you have a sudden influx of population from outside, it's going to create different kinds of problems, uh, municipal problems, waste management problems, water supply problems, energy problems. So I think what we are looking at is a scene where there'll be more strife in society because as your resource base shrinks and your population increases, there's going to be a conflict. There's going to be grab for limited resources by vested interest groups and this can become a wider conflict. So those are the kind of problems we are looking for. Agriculture is already on the decline in Pakistan. From 24% of the GDP, it's come down to 19%. We've literally used up all the arable land we have. So crop cultivation is going to be very difficult. For food security, we may not have enough land uh, that has the full spectrum of the organic matter that is needed for optimal agriculture. So food security will become a problem. Energy already is a problem and switching to renewables requires support from outside, both for solar and for wind energy. And urbanization will be another big problem. We, we will have massive out migration issues. Okay. There's been a big push to link uh, debt to climate change here, the issue of debt, and Pakistan, of course, is, is an indebted nation. Could you maybe just um, give me your thoughts on how the uh, 
the flooding might have affected the financial situation of Pakistan and why that impacts on people further down. There is a big connection between, uh, I think, the um, debt that Pakistan owes right now and the relief that it is requesting for. Because under normal circumstances, perhaps these kind of um, crises wouldn't have happened. We've had the pandemic, which was again an uncertainty, and it caused economic recession, not only in Pakistan, at the global level. Now we have the conflict in Ukraine that is also increasing the cost of food, energy, and, energy, and other you know, commodity prices. So for Pakistan, it was already difficult, and this has just exacerbated the existing inadequacies in the system. So Pakistan will have to look afresh on how it can rebuild more resilience uh, in the people and it will definitely need some relief because left on its own right now with the amount of loss and damage that it has to deal with as a country, the, no government um, will be able to provide that kind of uh, budget support to the people because we, we, we're talking about you know loss of livelihoods for people and we're talking about a large number of people 30 million displaced people who've lost their livelihoods is not a small number to accommodate and and we're talking more about it because um, because we don't have the resources you've seen the, the uh, hurricane that came in Florida I think those losses were estimated over 60 billion nobody's making a big fuss about it because the country has the resource capability to rehabilitate people we don't have that so for us, it becomes like a cycle of sinking deeper and deeper into poverty. Okay. So just to finish off, Aisha, it'd uh, be great to hear about your views more generally on the role that civil society can play in responding to the floods, but also more generally in developing Pakistan, which sounds like they're pretty interconnected at this point. Uh, uh, civil society in Pakistan is actually quite robust, it's quite vocal, and it does play a very active role. There are a lot of civil society organizations that come into uh, play uh, when there's a humanitarian crisis. The outpouring of relief and support is tremendous. We've seen that in the past, we've seen it this time as well. This time, it is a little bit less because I think everybody is feeling the burden of inflation. There is not so much to give. People are barely being able to meet their own uh, needs. But civil society in, uh, in advocacy, especially on climate change, has, um, I think, gained momentum. Uh, over the years, I have seen that policymakers are engaging more and more with civil society. They are seeking collaboration. They are seeking input. They're making policy through a process of co-creation and broad-based consultation. And civil society actors work directly with the grassroots community. So it's possible for me, for example, and other organizations who talk to communities to start connecting the, the disasters that they are facing with climate change. And right now, you get a buy-in because they actually see those things happening to their lives. So they're able to relate. And when you give an explanation in a simple way, which is not too technical, they can understand what they should do for sustainable development and what will be detrimental for the environment. One thing that we've spoken about previously, it's the political context in Pakistan right now is, is very unstable, it's pretty uncertain. How can you, that affect uh, the attempts at recovery and resilience building? 
there has been political instability in Pakistan for quite some time now. And instead of improving, things have been deteriorating over a period of time. And I think that is a very negative thing for a country to have to deal with at a time when it is dealing with such a big crisis. There should be more cohesion. Political parties should put their differences aside. They should come together and work for relief, rehabilitation and mobilizing resources instead of this infighting that is going on. So yes, on the one side it creates this rift and on the other side it detracts the sitting government for paying all the attention that it needs to because it spends more than half its time firefighting. So definitely it, it, it is not something that is helping us right now in the country and I hope we're able to overcome it soon. Aisha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to COPcast. We'll be publishing episodes every day throughout COP27. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others you think would be interested in it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have some feedback about this episode that you want to share or are at COP and want to let us know what we should be covering, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at devex and at rumbichakamba underscore, or you can drop us an email at podcast at devex.com.